Hey guys, for today's Theology Thursday episode, it's going to be a little different than normal. I wanted to share with you a talk that I had the opportunity of doing at our local church here at the International House of Prayer a couple weeks back. And so today it's going to be a little longer because the recording is from the message that I shared at that service on the bride being spiritually prepared and and ready for Jesus' return. So I hope you enjoy and let me know your thoughts in the comments. Gabriel, it's good to have you here sharing this message again. Now, Gabriel, uh, she came to uh, IHOP here when she was 14 years old. She started coming. She grew up in Canada, and she would come to the Q&A times, because I remember there are all these old people in their 20s and 30s, and you were 14. It was a Q&A about the end times, and she had the most challenging questions to me. And I said, who are you? And she goes, my name's Gabriel. I said, good to meet you. My name's Michael. Michael and Gabriel. Let's be friends. <laughs> well, then she came to our Bible school for four years, and then after that, she graduated and been in leadership team for about five years. And has just a remarkable grasp of understanding of what the Lord's doing in this hour. So she shared on on Friday night a couple of weeks ago, and it was so uh, good. I said, would you do that again? Now, you grew up in Canada, and your hubby, Benji, grew up in Mexico, and you met in Kansas City. Right in the middle. Right Right, in the heartland. Right in the heartland. Where love grows. Where love (laughs) grows. Okay. Father, I thank you for Gabriel. I just thank you for the... 15 years, whatever, I've watched her grow in the word with so much hunger from her youth. And I just thank you for the flow of understanding that you've entrusted to her. And I ask you to bless the people and mark hearts in a special way. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. Amen. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open them to Revelation 19. We're going to look at some of the passage there, but... As Mike was saying, um, I was 14, and actually, I came and did ATC. So I was sitting where a lot of you were sitting. And it was the first time that I heard the message of the end times. And I actually always say that the end times was the mercy of God for my teenage years because we're all asking uh, this question, and I've learned that as we just get older, we, we tend to ask it in different ways. But as a teenager, you're asking the question of, who am I? What is the point of life? Why do I exist? What is my meaning? And I heard the message of the end times. I'll say initially I was a little bit freaked out, but it kind of gave me the unction to want to go study it, to learn it more, and to say, if these things are actually true, if Jesus really is coming back and it's more than just about, you know, me receiving salvation and forgiveness for sins, which I am so grateful for. But if it's more than just now me living my life and eventually when I die, I'm going to go be on a cloud and play a harp, then I can make sense of life. I can make sense of why I'm here and my purpose. And so I got the message of the end times at ATC when I was a teenager and It has really changed my life. And so I want to look at Revelation 19, specifically verse 7. And uh, I'll read verse 7 and then we'll kind of back up for a minute. 
But what we see in verse seven is it says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So what we see here in this verse is Revelation 19, in in case you haven't read it recently or studied it, Revelation 19 is the most epic passage yet to come in our future. Revelation 19 is the culmination of really what it is we're looking for, what it is uh, our lives are leading up to. And the reason I say that is what we get from this picture in Revelation 19, seven is a picture of a bride that is ready, that is pure, bright and spotless waiting for Jesus when he comes and when he splits the sky. And I just want to say from the beginning, part of the reason why this is so exciting is this really is our story. This is our love story. This is the story that we've been brought into from the moment that we received Christ. And what we see is even all the way back in the garden from the moment that The fall happened in Genesis 3.15, when in the moment of the fall, when Jesus promises that there will be a seed and there will be a person that will bring about redemption for the whole earth, that will bring about redemption for us and will undo the effects of the curse. Ultimately, what we're seeing in Revelation 19 is that from Genesis all the way throughout human history, we're on this storyline or we're on this trajectory making our way towards that day. And obviously we see a a big uh, culmination and part of the cross, but now we're left in this in-between from the cross until the day that Jesus returns, we're left waiting for our bridegroom and waiting for the day that he will actually split the sky and come for us. And so Revelation 19 is the most epic battle of human history. It's the clash between good and evil in the most epic way. I'm, I mean, how many of us in here love a good story of good versus evil and good triumphing in the end? That's why as humans, we love stories so much is we like to see the good win. We like to see victory and, and evil be removed from the planet or sin being you know, taken away. And really that this is what this is about that Jesus is coming back to split the sky and remove wickedness from the earth, remove sin, remove things that would hinder us from being able to fellowship with him face to face. But I wanna kind of take a step back and look at the larger picture of what's happening in Revelation 19. Because what we see in verse six, it says that I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt, give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And so there's this multitude that is in heaven at the time, and we see, again, she's dressed in white. She's dressed 
bright, pure, and fine linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints. And again, this is the culmination of human history, but more than the culmination of human history, this is actually the epic last battle of the most intense three and a half years of human history. Right before this scene takes place, the earth is gonna go through the most, uh, the darkest time in history. Sin is going to reach its fullness. We see uh, Matthew 24, 12 says that lawlessness is going to abound in the earth. And because lawlessness abounds, the love of many will grow cold. And so this scene is powerful because this is the deciding victory of a war, so to speak, in the last three and a half years of human history. And you know, uh, we just celebrated recently the 75th anniversary of D-Day and how D-Day was such a deciding day in the victory of World War II. And you think about, you know, all the battles throughout human history. And as we, you know, look back and study history, you see the things that were in place that, you know, made it so that you know, the victory was won, but it was by a hair. And, you know, only if this and this and this were in place, could this have happened? And we look back and we celebrate those days of victory because we know that if it went the other way, our lives would look dramatically different from what they do right now. And what we're seeing happen in Revelation 19 is that this is the epic last battle of just the climax of good and evil facing off against one another. And while darkness is covering the earth and sin is reaching its fullness, and, and again, that verse of the lawlessness causing people's hearts to grow cold, what we see in the earth leading up to that time is that people will lose their ability to love. And I was thinking about that. What would it look like if, humans, if we lost our capacity to love. That really means that we would be desensitized and, and really unfeeling and uncaring about our fellow man, uncaring and only consumed with ourselves. And we actually see a picture of what it looks like uh, in the end times for this to be in a man. And we see that at the end, there's a beast. That when love grows cold, because lawlessness abounds, the Bible says that the Antichrist is the lawless one. And so what we see is in the human heart, we end up being less human-like and more animal-like or more beast-like when our hearts grow cold. And the Bible says that love, the love of many will grow cold which means all across the earth, we're going to see this kind of lawlessness abounding in people's hearts. And you know, I think of Auschwitz and I think of the horrors that we saw not even that long ago and what humanity was capable, what humans were capable of doing to other humans. And it's hard to fathom. And yet because of deception, because of hardness of heart, there's going to, that is going to be operating in a global level and, and, and the level of injustice that will be happening on the earth before Jesus comes back is gonna be staggering. I mentioned in the earlier service that 
something that stuck out to me is I'm a part of um, what we call CBETS, the Center for Biblical End Time Studies. And on Wednesday nights, kind of throughout the school year, Mike is going through the 150 chapters that talk about the end times in the Bible, right? And a lot of this is we're kind of staring at some of these passages and, and trying to just figure out what does the Bible say about that day? What does the Bible say about the events that are going to happen right before Jesus comes back? And something that has stuck out to me is Mike, most of the time before he starts his message, is he'll come with you know, an outline or kind of like a, a title to theme what's happening, the main gist of what's happening in a passage. And what has stuck out to me is how many passages talk about Jesus's master justice plan when he returns. In other words, he has this master plan to establish justice on the earth. And that is because injustice is going to be so rampant throughout the earth that we're gonna need someone to come and bring law and order, to bring justice, to make things right to get rid of the wickedness and, and the evil in the earth. And it's made me think of also Psalm 45. It's this beautiful passage about Jesus. And what we see in Psalm 45 is that he's presented as this mighty warrior on a horse. And it says that he has a sword on his thigh. And it says that he rides forth for the sake of truth, humility, and righteousness. And it makes me think if he's riding on as a mighty warrior to establish truth, humility, and righteousness, it must be because there is a lack of those things on the earth before he comes. A lack of truth, a lack of humility, and a lack of righteousness on the earth. And therefore, he has to come as a mighty warrior to come establish those things. And so we see just... Leading up to Revelation 19, there's this gross, thick darkness that is covering the earth. Isaiah 24 talks about the fact that the earth is going to stagger like a drunk man underneath the weight of its transgression. And it also says that darkness and deep darkness will cover the earth and the people of the earth right before the Lord comes and it says that the Lord will arise over his people in that time and his glory will be seen on us. But it's in the midst of darkness that this happens. And actually the two chapters right before Revelation 19, we see something uh, called the harlot Babylon. And this harlot in Revelation 17 and 18, what it is is it's a, it's a city that is going to be established on the earth. We haven't yet seen it built, but really what it is is in our day, we're going to see what the people all the way back in the Tower of Babel were trying to do and, and working to do to build this city that would reach the heavens to where they would have their own power and, and it would be just, a, you know, the best that humanity could build and offer on its own apart from God, we're actually going to see the fruition of that in our day. And in Revelation 17 and 18, this city is called great nine times. And even the apostle John, when he saw it, it says that he marveled greatly. And so why is this city so great? Well, 
This city, I'm sure, will have the most advanced technology, the most advanced uh, just medical care, luxuries, riches, just every comfort imaginable and beautiful to behold. It's going to be so great, again, that even John was marveling at what he saw. But the thing is, is if we step back and we get the perspective that the Bible gives us in Revelation 17 and 18, we see that even the best that humanity has to offer in itself apart from God, even the very best that we have in innovation and creativity, technology, she's presented as a harlot. So humanity at its very best is presented as the mother of harlots, filled with abominations, filled with impurities from her sexual immorality, and it says that she's drunk with the blood of the saints. And this, again, is the context to which we see that verse of Revelation 19, 7, the bride made ready. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, 30, that both the wheat and the tares are going to grow up together into maturity. And now, by no means are we at the beginning of that growth. Obviously, we've seen the growth of the wheat and tares throughout history, but I do believe that we are at a point right now where we're seeing it grow way faster than maybe we have in, in years past. That both the wheat and the tares, like, I am so hopeful and so filled with faith right now by what is happening in the church. Like even just in our community, just hearing the things that are happening or on the horizon or looking back to convergence in September and how God moved, God has moved so powerfully in our midst and one thing and, and just our interaction as a base, and then larger than us as a community, seeing what God is doing across the city. I feel more filled with faith and hope that God is going to move in our city like he said he would than I ever have. I'm expecting of the fact that there really will be the fa- uh, you know words coming to pass that no disease known to man will stand in Kansas City that there will be a great harvest in the 500 mile radius that there will be a great harvest. And not only in the 500 mile radius, but across the earth that the bride is growing into maturity like Jesus said that she would. And yet at the same time, we see that the tares are growing up as well. And so when we look at this, when we see what what is happening in this picture, Really, at the end of the age, right before Jesus comes, there, there's going to be two brides. There's the harlot, and then there's the bride that's pure and spotless and ready and waiting for him. And my question for us this morning is, how does this affect us today? Are we living in such a way that prepares us for the wedding of that day? And I want to focus on answering this specifically in in three different ways. I want to look at, one, how the nations are responding currently. Two, how we are to respond to this. And then three, I want to look at just God's involvement in all of this. But if I could just take a moment to share with you uh, 
over the last few months and, and really actually over the last three years, kind of since the 2016 elections, I've been paying a bit more attention to what's been happening um, specifically, obviously here in the US and across the globe. And I've been paying a little bit more attention because it, it initially for me started with the women's march that we saw right after um, the inauguration in, in, I guess it would have been 2017. And at first, you know, we see this women's march happening and you're kind of like, okay, okay, like, I think this is a good thing. Like, yes, justice for women and, you know, empowerment. And, you know, that all sounds great. We want to stand for women who are oppressed and, you know, whatever. And just as time has gone by, you can see how the mask, so to speak, has been coming off and really just the rage underneath it all has been exposed more and more. And how things get presented as good or it gets presented as this is justice, but really it's just a hidden agenda underneath. And and there's a lot of just darkness and wickedness behind it and motivating it. But that was kind of my wake up call at first to just be paying attention to what's been happening. And I'll say just a few things that have been happening recently that have really grabbed my attention. And one of them has been um, just the pro-life laws and bills that have recently gone into place over just the last two months. 13 states have uh, passed what they're calling heartbeat bills, which is essentially when you can detect the heartbeat of a baby, which is very early on in pregnancy, as we know and as science tells us, that it is illegal after that point to get an abortion. And I say, this is a massive victory and a massive move in the right direction. <laughs> Missouri is actually going to be the first abortion-free state since Roe v. Wade, as of, I believe it's August. Yeah, and I, I look at that and I think, oh Lord, you, this has to be an answer to prayer. I mean, what else? You are moving on behalf of the prayers of the saints and for what your heart is, is jealous and zealous for. But it's amazing because while these laws are being passed and put into place, at the same time, we see this almost knee-jerk reaction where on the other side, states like Vermont, Illinois, and New York are passing bills that have absolutely no restriction late-term abortion, and they're actually lighting up buildings in Manhattan in pink to celebrate women's rights. And not only that, but just the rage involved in all of it. Like, like if you want to just go be depressed, go on Twitter. Like, it is the cesspool of humanity right now. It's terrible. But for real, you just go on Twitter and you just see the back and forth of things that are being said and, and, and people just raging at one another over these things. And so that's been happening. On another note, uh, I've been following uh, this pro-life group called Live Action and they recently were censored on social media, which means that they weren't allowed to post you know, their pro-life information, you know, things, facts about babies in the womb, science, all of that. And they were censored because uh, Pinterest said that they were providing uh, medical misinformation and that the things that they were promoting is actually detrimental to the health of the public. So, but instead, you know, 
whatever is pro-abortion is, is totally fine to be used on those platforms. We saw Pride Month being celebrated in June and just a growing intolerance for anyone who would think or feel or believe differently. In my home province of Ontario, there's a law that was passed that if you as a parent are counseling their child on their gender, you can actually be taken to jail and your kids taken away from you because you're not allowed to tell your son or your daughter what their gender is. There's specific targeted attacks against people of faith right now, and they're being called religious fanatics, bigots, and haters, and this is something that has been alarming me more and more as how that's really becoming a key piece in the narrative. I mean, we're seeing it even promoted from candidates that are running for president right now, just you know, rage against people of faith, people that would hold traditional values. And that's just happening here in our local area. If we kind of scale back and look at what's happening in the world, we have the crisis in Venezuela, we have the crisis in Syria, and anti-Semitism that is on the rise again after just 70 years after the greatest tragedy in human history against the Jewish people, and anti-Semitism is again on the rise. And so I look at all of these things that are taking place, and it almost knocks the wind out of you because you're like, what is going on? And Mike has been saying this phrase for years, and it's just been ringing more and more true in my mind, is that if we do not know the biblical narrative of what is going to take place in the earth, then we will automatically adopt the secular one. And there's biblical illiteracy right now that is causing a lot of trouble for believers because the pressure, the outside pressure from society is so strong that if, you, if you're not solid on what you believe or what scripture says, it's just too easy to crack underneath that pressure, especially if you're a public figure. But we're seeing more and more that even if you're a private citizen, things are starting to crack down. And I've seen it and experienced it even up close in my own life of friends that I know who, you know, I've run with in different seasons of life, reading the Bible, praying together, you know, loving Jesus together, and how it's, it's easy even to, for them that it, they're starting to believe things that are different from some of the basic doctrines of Scripture. And part of it is just there's a bombardment day after day after day saying this is what you should believe. This is what's right. This is what's true. You know, your own truth is what's true. You just do you. You be who you were born to be. And, you know, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And, again, while there's some truth in those messages, I like what um, Isaac had to say last week, that that message is ultimately the opposite of what the cross is. Because the cross is come deny yourself and follow Jesus. And so what we're seeing though is this adoption of the secular narrative because of so much biblical illiteracy. But I wanna say that David saw this ahead of time in Psalm two. And if there is a must know passage for the day that we're living in, it's Psalm two. And I just wanna put that before you. Mike has spoken many messages on it 
You can find more information on it, but read this psalm and, and get into it for yourself because it is crucial to know right now. And what we see David says is that he talks about these nations and specifically kings and rulers wanting to cast off the laws of God, wanting to cast off um, you know, his, his moral code and his, his word because in their eyes it's restricting. It's blocking the fullness of human potential. It's blocking our ability to just be who we are and express ourselves. And remember that humanity in its best and in its fullness apart from God, she's a harlot. But yet right now we see just this wanting to cast off the word of God because it's blocking us from our real potential. And what David says, he says, oh nations and you kings and you rulers, this is only going one way. I know the end of the story. He says, Jesus is going to end up in Jerusalem. The father has already appointed his son to be king in Jerusalem. And he's going to rule there with a rod of iron. And he says to the kings, he says to the rulers, to the nations and to us, bow down and kiss the son. Receive that protective kiss of the son on your life, which means bow down, align your life with his leadership, align your life with his ways, his word, the things that he, say is, he says is true, his definitions of love, of marriage, of life, line up your life with what he says, because this is only going one way. Bow down and kiss the son, be wise. And I want to say that, again, the we and the tares, they grow up together. And so I am filled with faith and with hope of what God is going to do, that we really are going to see a great harvest of souls. We're going to see people come into the kingdom in numbers that I've never witnessed in my lifetime. I believe that wholeheartedly. I heard recently from uh, Mark Anderson at YWAM that out of 14,000 people groups, who did not have uh, the word of God or the gospel witness to them in their language, we're down to only 263, I believe, of those 14,000 people groups. Like, we're a second away from those people receiving the gospel in their own language. And so I'm so hopeful of where this is going and what God is doing in the midst of all of this. And yet, at the same time, we have to reckon with verses like Revelation 9, 21, that says that the nations do not repent of their sexual immorality, their murderers, their sorceries, and their thefts. Which means that we see from where we are right now, again, wickedness is going to grow into maturity. The nations are going to persevere in their evil and in their wickedness. But at the same time, David foresaw that there really would be that bride in Revelation 19 that kisses the son, that agrees with him, that lines up her life with his, his ways and his, his laws. And so now I want to talk about what our response should be. 
And I've been looking at Luke 21, which alongside Matthew 24 and and Mark 13 are Jesus's uh, teachings on what the signs of his coming would be. What would be, you know, the disciples ask him, tell us what the signs of your coming will be like. What's it going to be like in that day? And what should we do to prepare? And Jesus actually prophesied that there was going to be distressing events in the nations. And he says that they would test all people, which means that even it's going to test our hearts. And he says that these events would be so intense that men's hearts would actually begin to fail them from fear. And I came across this um, statistic the other day that according to Dr. Robert Leahy, who's a cognitive therapist, he says that the average teenager today experiences the same level of anxiety as a psych patient did in the 1950s, which means just the level of anxiety, of stress, of worry, of just the bombardment of information and, you know, information that is coming from halfway across the globe. So doesn't necessarily affect our immediate lives, and yet we're hearing it day by day by day. This is causing men's hearts to begin to faint with fear. And yet Jesus' message to us in that very same sentence is when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. In other words, this is the greatest moment for you. You don't need to get caught up in fear. You don't need to get caught up in the worry and in the anxiety that the nations are getting caught up in. This is the most exciting time to be alive and to be a part of the church. So look up. And when Jesus exhorts us with two specific things, that when when the nations are raging and when people's hearts are failing from fear, he says, I want you to do two things to guard your heart. I want you to watch and I want you to pray. And this is one of those verses that I'm just counting on. Like I said, this verse and the Revelation 19.7, I'm taking them to the bank. (laughs) Like I'm going to withdraw on those promises. I know that it's a signed blank check and I'm good to go. If I watch and if I pray, I can know for sure that I will be okay, that I'll be ready. Because these are the two things that Jesus exhorted us to do. And I'm glad because he could have said anything. He could have said, okay, I want you to store up guns. I want you to make sure you have enough water, build a bunker in your backyard, you know, learn some survival tactics, some kung fu, whatever. And I'm really glad that he didn't say those things because I've joked in the previous uh, service that I would be like one of the first ones gone if it was up to our survival instincts. Like, I love to camp, I like getting out in nature, but I like to glamp. Like, give me my glamorous camping air mattress. I want something to plug my phone in in case I need the sound of a fan at night, which I do already on my phone. Like I, I just want things ready and available and you would not want to be stuck with me if it depended on your life. And I'm gonna throw Benji, my husband under the bus too. Like 
yeah, you just don't want to be with us. So we're trying to fix our garage door. It's been broken for like five months and we have no idea what's wrong. So if you know how to fix a garage door, please. No, so Jesus says though, the two things that you need to do to prepare is watch and pray. And I want to suggest that watching and praying isn't just what we have to do to prepare for the end times. I want to suggest that watching and praying is how we are to respond to the trouble and the crisis that is facing us right now. You know, I just look at these events that I listed off to you a minute ago. I, you know, if I just even look back over the last few months of hearing uh, all of these things happen, and in hindsight, I'm, I'm like, it kind of feels like birth pangs. I have an eight-month daughter I just gave birth to uh, in November, and so I know now what it feels like to be in labor. And, you know, in the early stages of labor, you begin to feel these contractions, and while they're not as long and as intense or close together as they will be later on in your labor, they, they're still enough that make you kind of pause, focus in, you know, do your breathing exercises. And then after they've, you know, after the contraction's done, you have some time, you don't know how long, but you have some time until the next one comes. But what happens in the early stages of labor is you get alerted to say, okay, this baby's coming. Like, there's nothing you can do to stop it. The time is here. Ready or not, she's coming. So you have to know that, okay, if this baby's coming, I need to prepare accordingly. And now after, you know, going through this labor with my own baby, I understand more why Jesus says that the coming of the Son of Man is going to be like a woman in labor. It says uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But what's been happening inside of me as I just look at some of the laws and the things that have been taking place recently is it almost makes me just pause and groan. And that inward groan, if I can tie it to Romans 8, that inward groan I really do believe is the Holy Spirit that is there to help us make intercession when we do not know what to say and we do not know what to pray. You know, you go and you pray for life in the prayer room and you pray for things in, in private, but there's sometimes when the pain is just overwhelming that all you can do is groan on the inside. And I believe that that is the Holy Spirit's groan inside of us to say, hey, I told you, I want you to be an anointed observer. I want you to watch and I want you to come and meet me in this place of prayer. And so while we're groaning inside of us, eagerly waiting for the redemption of the, of the sons of man and even creation, it says is groaning and waiting for the return of the Lord. What we know is that this groan is producing something greater inside of us. And it's producing that cry that I would actually look like Jesus at the end of all of this. 
that I have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the son. And so right now I'm in the midst of the labor pangs. I'm in the midst of the trial. That chisel is doing its work on me. And at the end, we're going to see this grand masterpiece, this artwork called the bride of Christ that is ready, that is equally yoked and burning with love for her bridegroom. And if we keep looking at what's happening in in Romans 8, you know, it's this incredible passage and like the climax of, of, you know, Paul's exhortation on the gospel. And he's saying, you know, the Holy Spirit is groaning inside of us, making intercession for us, you know, looking for that redemption that we know is promised to us. We know that we're predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And then he goes on to say, therefore, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Can trials, can persecutions, can famine, can nakedness, even if we are being counted like sheep to the slaughter, being persecuted, being martyred, even if we're being like sheep led to the slaughter, even then, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, for we are more than conquerors through the love of God. And what I see is that when we watch and when we pray, we actually go to that place of prayer. What it is, is we are consumed with our pain, but we get met by something so much more consuming in that place. And that is the man with eyes like a flame of fire. We get consumed and caught up with his jealousy towards us as a bridegroom. We get caught up in how zealously He is pursuing our hearts to make us prepared, to help bring us to the point of being part of that bride that meets him in the sky. And so we know that we're conquerors. We know that through the love of Christ that we will overcome. But I want to say to you right now that the best place for us to prepare our hearts is in intimacy with Jesus. We watch and we pray, and that prayer brings us into the place of intimacy where we encounter the heart of the bridegroom God. You know, the bride who cries, come at the end of the book of Revelation, I wanna propose to you that she's not just passively awaiting Jesus's return. No, the bride is lovesick. The bride is longing, consumed with this yearning in her heart that you have to come back because things are so bad right now. And not only are things so bad, I mean, that's terrible, but we miss you so much. We need you to come. We need you to come and rule. We want you as our bridegroom king and our judge to rule the earth with that rod of iron. And the mystics talk about this uh, being wounded with love, St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Ava, they tell of some of their experiences in encountering the love of God. And St. John of the Cross says that when he's wounded with love, it's like this piercing of one's inner center, like fiery darts. And he says that it brings this immense torment and yearning to see God face to face. And it says he causes like a dying with love inside of you. And I wanna propose to us that this is 
our love story. This is the kind of intimacy with God that we have yet to walk into and yet is fully available to us right now. To be consumed with longing, to be caught up with that same fire that we see in his eyes, to actually feel that on the inside of us. And I'm gonna give you a very lame example, but when Benji and I were first married, um, like Mike mentioned, I'm from Canada, he's from Mexico, and so we both had to have visas in order to be here in the States. And what happened was we got married, and I, at the time, was waiting for my visa to come in, so I couldn't leave the country. But Benji needed to go back to Mexico to renew his visa. And we actually didn't know how long it would take for him to renew his visa. It ended up being two weeks. But initially, we didn't know how long he was going to be gone for. So a month into our marriage, we're separated for two weeks, and we were physically sick with the feeling of missing each other so much. Like I was like, food lost its taste. I was doing the whole like, what is the point of life thing? You know, like it's one of those days where you just don't want to get out of bed and like that kind of sick with love. And it wasn't just me, he was feeling it too. So I want to propose though, and this is like a micro scale but how much more consumed are we going to be for our bridegroom as we know that we are days or years, days, months, hours away from him breaking into the earth. We are gonna be consumed with longing to say, just come, come. And what we see and what I believe just the future of our love story with Jesus right now is that we are going to experience that love that is better than wine. What Song of Solomon talks about, that his love that is better than all of the pleasures that the earth offers. And what we see even at the end of the book of Song of Solomon is that the bride is sealed with this mark on her heart. And it says it's a seal of love. And that fiery brand has come and marked her heart. And when you take that brand away, you see what was left there. You cannot undo that mark of love. And I know that just more and more as we approach the day of his coming, we are gonna be walking in the greater revelation of Jesus as our bridegroom, who is jealous for all of our hearts. When he came and met with Israel in Exodus 19 on the mountain, he came as fire on the mountain and he proclaimed that I am a jealous God. I don't want any other gods before me. I want your whole heart. And then he came at Pentecost and he rested on the believers like tongues of fire. And again, it's I want your whole heart. But what's happening is when he splits the sky in Revelation 19, he's coming as the man of fire that's coming for a wholehearted, pure bride without spot, without wrinkle, and without blemish. And this is the day that we're approaching and getting closer and closer to. We are walking in and it's available to us today. I'm like, Lord, touch my heart in greater ways. I wanna feel your jealousy on my heart. I don't even want any sort of, of spot. I don't want any, even if it's little in my life, I want you to come and show 
me your jealousy over my life that even in the little things, I would remove the wrinkles. I would remove the spots so that I would be prepared as that bride waiting for him. And I wanna say that this is God's involvement in all of this, that as we respond with watching, with praying, with waiting, that he's there to move on our hearts. He's there with that fiery seal of love to come and, and mark us and, and brand us. I'm gonna call the worship team up. Just as we close, I want to say that the greatest way right now for us to respond, both in the trouble of what's happening around us and in the future trouble, we watch, we pray, but we encounter him day by day by day in that place of intimacy and prayer. It's not okay anymore, and I'm realizing this in my own life. It's not okay for me to live off the testimony of yesterday, of the, the bread of yesterday in my life. I love that I was a 15-year-old that was on fire for the Lord and that studied the end times. But I want to go beyond that. I want to grow in my relationship. I want to go further in my zeal. I want to go further in my love and fervency. And as I kiss the son, as I bow down and kiss him and agree with his leadership on my life, I want to, in that place, receive his kisses on my heart as well. And so my call to us today or my charge to us is not only that we would walk in confidence that we are to be part of that bride that meets him in that sky and that is awaiting him with longing for his return, but also that we would today encounter him as the bridegroom. It's a simple call. It's something that I personally need to re-sign up to every day. And it's something that we lose track of so easily to line our lives up again to say, kiss me with the kisses of your word. Meet me in the trouble and in the groaning and in the pressures and the pain that I'm facing. Maybe it's personal, maybe it's family dynamics, or maybe like me, you're seeing what's happening in society and there's that inward groan in you that's saying, this is not okay. I was made for something greater than this. I was made for that day that you're coming to split the sky. I wanna invite you to stand. Again, it's a simple call, but I wanna invite you to come to the front line if you're just saying, Lord, I want to realign my life. I wanna put myself in a position to encounter you as a bridegroom. And I, I also wanna get out of the secular narrative. I want to see from scripture what it is you're saying about the hour that we're living in. Even to renounce and repent for ways that we've come into agreement with what the world has been saying. And yes, the pressure is strong and it's there. But again, he's a bridegroom. 
He says, I want all of your heart. You can come right up to the front line and if our leaders would come and pray for people. Father, I ask that you would give us a vision to see ourselves as part of that bride in Revelation 19. Lord, that we would put our names right there in that verse to say, I, Gabriel, will be part of the bride that's made ready. Lord, I ask that you would help us make decisions, help this even affect our lives today, that in light of what's coming, the good and the pressure, I ask Holy Spirit that you would help us line up our lives with the decisions that we make today, with the people we surround ourselves with. And Father, I ask that we would feel the fiery eyes of Jesus who is our bridegroom. That jealousy that says, I will have no other gods before you. If our leaders would come pray. We will wait for that day Lamps are lit Oil is stored Hearts are burning Bridegroom Lord We will watch We will pray We will wait For that day Lamps are lit Oil is stored Hearts are burning Bridegroom Our lamps are lit and oil is 